0: Welcome to The Travelling Senorita, episode number 44. As I've mentioned, we're not really flying around the universe right now, but we are grounded, and that is fantastic for me because I get to uncover local stories of where I live, which is in the Tweed in northern New South Wales. And I have found, I believe, probably one of the most authentic storytellers and the source of uh, curry country, where we are sitting today, pay homage and respect to curry country, And the bungjalung nation where we are sitting in fingal today please introduce please introduce i'll introduce please welcome my guest arabella douglas
1: hello and thank you so much for having me on your show and i'm so excited to be at fingal as i just saw some dolphins jumping up a minute ago which was very nice and i am from fingal head i am a sixth generation aboriginal person who's lived in fingal head i grew up here i went to school at the local fingal head public school and I was the fourth generation to attend that school. Uh, and it's really a pleasure to be here, looking out in the ocean and looking at this magnificent coastline.
0: So so for somebody that's, um, you know, I really want to know more about the um, authentic Indigenous uh, culture of Australia, um, knowing more about the how it all fits in, the song lines, the... The stories associated with this incredible age old culture. Can you please at least give me your little bit, your version of, of what that looks like for you, Arabella?
1: Uh, well, I'm a Curry descendant, so my surname, my Aboriginal surname, is likely to have been Curry Koran or Curry Kin Kin. So we take the name Curry, C U R R I E, and Curry country for us is, del- is determined by the river systems which border our country. So our country starts at the Bremer River, which is just south of Ipswich, which is not very far from here, about an hour and a half by car. And you follow the Bremer River and you come down the Albert River, which takes you out towards Malanjali country, you can country of Bow Desert. You follow the Albert River down to the Rouse River, which connects to the Tweed River, which we can see on this beach to the left of us that river system, that aquatic system, is the border of our country. So that's how I know that I'm in country, that I'm on my own country and this is where I belong and this is where my ancestors walked, birthed their children, had their families worked, all within this footprint. Now, how you get a song line and how we kind of, I guess, know intuitively through our own language is I was very lucky that my great grandmother, name, whose name is Jane Curry, was recorded by anthropologists back in the 1930s speaking language. Uh, the language that she spoke was Minyangbul uh, Malanjali, which is the dialects of where we are at the moment. And what's also very exciting about understanding that is that in our own family history, and I knew Jane, uh, you you understand how a song line works and I might explain that because I think some people don 't understand it very clearly but to have a song line in your family and we have our own song in our language that we all learn it determines it determines how where your point a or your point b of your land is so that you know how to travel from point A and point b. The next mob or the mob that would be between b and c would have their own language and it would be able to sing a song to tell you how to move from b to c c to d e to f f to g song lines exist all throughout australia and different mobs or different clans are responsible for a song line that travels or traverses their part of their country my song line starts in malanjali country so just at the back of bow desert we sing a song that moves us from Malanjali country all the way back at the back of Mwoolumba down to Tweed and the last stanza in that song or the last few words are the Aboriginal words for fingerhead that's how I know I'm on country so if I, my ancestors or my grandparents were to tell me where to go or how to move they sing a song and they tell me which direction to go in I follow the words of that song, and in that song, it moves you from place to place. That's how a song line works. The next nation or the next clan would have a song or a stanza or a verse in their song that would take them from potentially, you know, if switch into Yagara country or Yugra pool country or Kabi Kabi country or uh, Bunya country all of their language in their dialects would have a similar type of song that travels their country that's how a nation or a mob knows what their boundary is and it also knows where they are in their place and their purpose so i'm never lost i've known for a very long time i'm almost 50 so all of my life where my song line is which will be immovable it's not determined by a state or a borderline or development i know exactly where i belong so at the moment i'm at the very end or the very tip of my country and the very top of my country just sits in beneath ipswich wow and it's it's when you're talking
0: about that i, I think of modern music or the way that music has been written has got to have come from the the ancient art of soul lines.
1: Oh, there's no doubt i think um one of the questions i was asked not long ago is how do people know a moving song so how a traveling song versus other sort of ceremonial songs and the way that i described it to some young nieces and nephews who were in primary school and it's kind of like just moving your dial in a radio station in a car you can move to a station and hear a country station or a yeah. classical station or a pop station you don't need to know all the words of those songs to understand. You know the genre. You know the genre. Yeah. Songlines yeah. work in the same way. Wow. There is a genre for walking or moving songlines, as there is a genre a genre for ceremony, other ceremonial purposes, weddings, death, uh, sharing culture, um, also. Um, arguing or fighting that sort of ceremonial business uh, all of those songs like you would know the difference you you don't need to know the words to know the difference between a song that would be used in death or mourning yeah. versus a song that would be used for a wedding you don't need to know the words you could tell by the tone of the song what the purpose of the song is whether it's light and happy whether it's about mourning whether it's about something else aboriginal songlines work exactly the same way i don't need to know the language of another mob i can determine what their song or ceremony is about by the rhythm of that song now I would be able to determine as they would be able to determine for us if I'm singing my traveling song they would know it's a traveling song and I'm not singing a song about celebration or about mourning because that rhythm is the thing that's national which is very exciting when you explore songlines in depth you will see that mobs have same um, have some songs which move which are about movement walking which are about ceremony morning business a similarity and that's my song so my song line song takes me from one area to another i then know Yagara mob have a similar traveling song which go from the corner of ipswich up further to Fassifern into toowoomba i know bunya mob have a similar song and it's not the words that are similar it's the rhythm of the song that is similar
0: Beautiful. i love that that's a really um thank you for that and so young Arabella we're sitting on Fingal Beach and I'm um, not saying that you're old really, uh, and we're sitting on Fingal Beach and Fingal's always been really I've been up here um, nearly nearly a couple of decades and it's always somewhere I've come just as a feeling I get a I get a really sacred feeling and energy when I'm here and I and I have you know and I've been, I know that the indigenous um, the indigenous culture here is strong and I can feel it through the earth so you have been um, blessed for, for mm. landing here and as, as, as being born here um, and what was it like
1: as a young girl running around this beach here? Uh, I think it was great. I think Fingal has always been great. I mean, where we're sitting at the moment, there's a lot of unknown Aboriginal connection and history to Fingal. There are warrior caves in the headland which um, were disturbed when mining took place in the 50s and then they were um, reburied. so my uncle Athel Compton takes people on tours to the headlands to talk about that story that's a male story but that's a significant cultural site that exists in the Tweed Coast that people don't know about there's not enough information about knowing about so unfortunately Fingal was mined um, like other parts of the Tweed Coast but the hills were so large my mother would say when she was a kid you know that she would, like, come down on a piece of um, iron, you know, or a piece of cardboard down large hills. So you're talking about large valleys and hills that have just been levelled here at Fingal. It also has amazing traditional birthing areas here at Fingal. It has freshwater births, which a lot of people don't know about. There are freshwater soaks all along these headlands, so... Um, which is good in times like now where you're concerned about water and concerned about food security. I have none of that fear. Yeah. I know where fresh water is in Fingal. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people in the Tweed don't know where they can get fresh water out of the ground. So they're kind of the benefits of understanding how Fingal operates. Yes. The freshwater stream from Fingal, which goes across to Yuguribar Island, which is at South Tweed, both of those areas are significant birthing areas. And the reason they are significant birthing areas is because underneath you have fresh water so women would birth in those areas and um so i think it was very spiritual um it's a healing place for women without doubt um and it's a significant uh site i think historically and it's a shame that people don't know more about that to really understand that they have um incredible stories here it's interesting
0: though so. that i mentioned um because you have the history and the culture and mm. and i'm in awe of that but um it's interesting how I, I pick up on that feeling. I, I, I definitely am connected to earth in the sense of if I know something's not vibing for me, I won't kind of go there. But if I go, you know, if I go to it, we were talking about this off-air um, when when the, the trees and the ocean, they actually give you so much if you're anxious or mm. you feel that, you know. Fingal's always had that really calm um, feeling for me as a woman um, and I like to come here on my own. <laughs> I like to be here um, and seek solace is probably the word I'm looking for. Mm. So you, you mentioned a story to me uh, before uh, about the coloured sands and the Commonwealth Games when you were, yeah. when you were younger. <laughs> I
1: love this. Oh well, you know, I don't know, there would be some people in the Tweed that would remember this but some people might not but the Headland used to be full of uh, multi-coloured sands so one of the tourist treats for a lot of the caravan parks in the Tweed coast used to be bottles filled with coloured, multiple coloured sands yeah. and as a kid you were constantly filling up bottles and taking them home, and a lot of people at Finglehead Public School did it. In 1982 or 83, when the Commonwealth Games were here, I don't know the year, I forget, but it was early 80s. Um Someone happened, one of the kids happened to notice there was the Canadian swim team down here at Fingal on the beach um, probably having a day off. And so kids, as you do, the teacher from Fingal School, because Fingal School only had two classrooms, but the classes went from, like, kindy to year And it's year literally six. a hop, skip and jump yeah, right here. It's yeah. right here. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's, you know, 200 metres from where we are. Yeah. So, of course, the teacher at the time was like, you know, there are... Well, we thought they were famous because they were simply Olympian swimmers, you know, um, so you know, come you know, come down to the beach to meet them and so um, myself and two of my cousins were in the front page of the paper I think at the time in 1982 or 83 whatever year it was, um, with the Olympic swim team and the thing of course that we thought to give them as a gift was of course just the coloured sand bottles. That. They would have loved they're, that. They're probably thinking, what are these giving us coloured sand for? What is this about? Yeah, um, yeah. But every time I come here I think how different the headland looks because it actually was quite large colored sands were all on this edge um of course when you're a kid everything looks larger but i wonder where all the colored sands went because they're clearly just been you know um it's now in the ground somewhere else. But um, it was, it was a highlight. in of, of those coloured sands. <laughs> so it was, I mean, I spent a lot of time out here. We would camp out here, like, just behind our houses. I lived in Letitia Road. Mm-hmm. So we would, you know, summertime was putting a tent out and coming out and swimming and getting fish. And mm-hmm. uh, Fingal Amazing. seemed a very long way from Tweed Heads um, in those years. It's 12 kilometres physically. Yeah. But it seemed a great distance, you know. um, So a lot of my childhood was, you know, here, Cabarita, uh, Wuyong, all of this side, not necessarily the Gold Coast. I don't ever remember really going to Gold Coast beaches very much when I was young, other than the occasional family event, which was done at Burley Hall, which had a Bora Ring next to it um, when I was a kid, you know, so, and I think the Bora Ring's still there, but a lot of people would have their weddings and engagements at that hall. Uh, but I spent most of my time in the Tweed Coast, Cujing Creek, you know, Kingsclare, Fingal, uh, and these areas. So it was exciting for me. As I As they say, it. it's
0: God's country. Not sure who coined that. Yeah. Um, Moving forward now, so when you leave school and you decide to uh, – because having spent a fair bit of time with you in, in this weekend, which I've really, really enjoyed, mm-hmm. you definitely – you've got an academic – brain it's just natural for you to to sort of seek out knowledge so where (laughs) did you decide to what did you decide to do in your 20s where did you go to uni what did you do
1: Uh, well I went to my first year of high school was at Tweed River High which is a local school and then I went to Sydney for the rest of my high school and university but I would always come back all my family's all in the Tweed so you know I would come back for every holidays you know come back when I could afford to fly myself which was from about 16 or 17 come back go out with my cousins, all of those sorts of things. So even if even would miss my country,
0: right? You would we would be well, said if you're in the city, I imagine. I think
1: you once you know you're a saltwater person Yes. Like once you have a relationship with your environment it's very difficult to find those sensations artificially anywhere yeah you know you might be distracted for a while yep. but it doesn't resonate in the same way so um, I moved from Finglehead with my mother with my sister down to Woolloomooloo which was a housing commission area in Sydney um, kind of in the CBD you know like it's very close to the city so we moved from here to there and I think it was the first time I did an interview a few years ago about this. And I think, for me, it was definitely the first time that I realised we were poor. I'd never felt that in the Tweed Coast. I never felt as though we were poor, even though I went to a very small school in a very small you, location. you were
0: always rich with nature. Like, what is poor? I just, you yeah, I just didn't... Yeah, I know? just...
1: I think that was the first time. I mean, Woolloomooloo is, like, in the eastern mm-hmm. suburbs of Sydney. Mm-hmm. So you're around other indicators of have and have not Mm. and I remember being quite because I was 12 I was 13 I think when we moved down there so first year after year seven so whatever age you are there um, I jumped to class when I was at school um, so I was always like the youngest in my year but I remember distinctly feeling like wow we're poor and I had no idea Um, and I think regional communities are quite lovely in that regard because class systems aren't always as obvious Um, And I think if you're a regional kid, and Tweed Coast is still considered regional in a lot of ways, even though we're 10 minutes from an international airport, um, I think that there's a luxury in that because um, class divide is not as obvious. Um, You do get the luxury. I mean, you know, I would take sandwiches to school which were like, you know, prawn sandwiches and (laughs) crab sandwiches. I think about that now and it's kind of crazy. But that didn't seem like a loss or... um, uh, a poor way of eating when I was even young. But the truth is, all well, my friends were taking bought food to school and I, we had a household that, you know, and we still do that now, called food exchange between our own family. So if my husband caught some fish yesterday, you saw some of that, yeah. you know, he's given that to some aunts this morning. Just... That is very common and that's very much the way I grew up in Fingal. People would be working on the farms or through Kujin, all those areas. Picking, people would come home and pick, I went out picking beans when I was a kid with my aunts and uncles, you know, like the kids on school holidays. So we would go out working with people, we'd probably do one bucket to their 15,000 buckets, like yeah, that was so quick yeah, as adults. Yeah. But it was fun, so I grew up on the Cushion farmland as well and go out and picking beans and um, other things out there, but mostly bean, bean picking. Um, And you would get excess, like the farmers do in a regional area, and you would share between your neighbours. That process of sharing is something we still do. So if we go out and get yuguri or pippies, we go out and get oysters or somebody, somebody will drop by and give us oysters or give us fish. That still happens. That happened when I was growing up in Fingal a lot. So you had a very shared sense of abundance. So when people were abundant and they had excess of something, they were very happy to share. When you move to, uh, and we still practice that, and I feel that that's very much an Aboriginal way of living and existing, because if you know that you can be fed by others and you know that if you don't have, someone will help feed you, it does give you a sense of security. Um, Even though we had not a lot of money when we lived at Fingal, um, I never felt as though our fridge was bare and we were without things. But that's probably because a lot of our food was supplemented by graciousness of other people and that's just how you lived. You so know. when you
0: go to and, <laughs> yeah. and you, I guess it's a really impressionable age, 12, 13, um, yeah. and so is it, is, it, is it sort of like that time of your life that it became a bit of a disconnect or...?
1: I think because I used to always come home, I mean, I think it would be different if I just went away and never visited back. That would be different. But I was always home throughout my teenage years and my 20s. But it certainly was powerful in that I understood that we were poor and that had its limitations, you know, at that time. And um, but then, you know, Woolloomooloo is an extraordinary place. And I remember, I mean, you know, I've got very good friends still from Wollumaloo. There's a reunion everyone has every year still at Wollumaloo. It was dynamic and exciting to be there, even being a kid, um, because you know there was the uh, Elizabeth Waimara who does black comedy. Her and I grew up together, close, close together. 16 the biggest impact for me there was a guy called John McGrath who owns McGrath Real Estate. He's from Woolmaloo. John, we used to all play touch football at Centennial Park with some other people. He was obsessed with Tony Robbins, which is a guru oh, about yeah, life changing. Oh well. Here so we go. this
0: is a very juicy
1: yeah, part of the story. Yeah, yeah well this that was the biggest one of the biggest impacts of my life. Yeah, you know, right. being around that clique. We all played touch football, you know, so I played I was not only a player but used to be the manager for the team called Woolmaloo Warriors, the girls' team, so all the girls were going to eat, you know to school in Willara, you know, um, St. Scholastica, St. Catherine's, you know, um, all the sort of public Catholic schools, you yeah, know, that yeah. sort of thing. All the boys were going to St. Mary's um, in Woolamaloo, that's, you know, or Waverley. Even though the Housing Commission kids, we all played sport together in the eastern suburbs. So yeah, yeah. Um, touch football was big, netball was big. So with this, um, I'm, I'm just picking up on something here, with the John McGrath and the Tony Robbins. Yeah, huge influence in my life. Yeah, so in yeah. what way? Uh, well, John was starting out then. I probably shouldn't be a story about John McGrath but uh, uh, I'm no, sure John no. won't hate me for saying it. But no, it's, uh, it's how
0: it sparks you. I love like, uh, yeah. I'm well, this is this is what happens.
1: So we're all kind of a clique together, like all around the same age and vintage. John's a bit older than me, and there were older boys, etc. But um, John was starting out in real estate. I think he was 19 and bought his own real estate agent. He was obsessed with a guy who was in real estate because actually Tony Robbins used to talk real estate. He didn't talk personal guru. He started in real estate. And um, John was obsessed with him and bought a ticket to get on the same flight as Tony Robbins, which was very impressive, you know, you kind of thinking. But it was the first time um, I, someone ever asked me in that group, we were all kind of thinking, what do you want to be in your life? What do you want to do in your life? Who do you want to be? I had no idea. I remember Mrs Finn, who I think still teaches in the Tweed, once told me in English, you should be a writer. You know, that's what you should do. Wow. And so my whole goal at that point when I was in high school was to uh, write in, at university. I thought I wanted to be a writer. The biggest degree was a communications degree at UTS at the time. That was when your grades were out of 500, so it was a long time ago. Yeah. Um, I remember these days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was my focus, like that my once, once upon a time, a teacher said I should write. Wow. Right. The truth is, I wanted to be Prime Minister. I would tell Mr. Witherspoon at, at uh, uh, Fingal Head Public School that I wanted to be Prime Minister. Now, it wasn't a great encouraged? reason. Uh, I wasn't encouraged. Mr. Witherspoon had an alcohol problem, God bless his cotton socks. I didn't know that. But he was a very uh, interesting teacher for Fingal. You know, he would make us do things like look for something in a phone book as a class, you know, like where you're just constantly looking for problem solving. But I probably annoyed the hell out of him. I used to always say, you know, can I rearrange the library? Can I do this? Can I do that? I love school and I didn't like going home. I didn't have a very nice home. Um, There's a lot of domestic violence in my home. And so my reaction to that when I was a kid was to spend as much time in school under any reason guys proposition whatsoever Mm -hmm. so a teacher never had to ask me more than once to do anything I was always looking for an opportunity not to to go home (laughs) yeah so when people say oh my god you know I have a lot of degrees I'm doing a PhD Um, I'm very well educated from anyone's point of view but that is not driven by my desire to be that it's actually a reflection of an environment I wanted to escape and as a kid you don't have many options you're either at home or you're at school. Yes. I didn't want to be at home, so I very much was geared towards being at school. Not realizing that my joy of learning—I loved learning. I still love learning. Um, you know, I—I I don't even know how many years I've been a student. It would be far too long to even count. But much more than any high school education, I've been in tertiary education, so multiple degrees, oh, etc. So it's yeah. a long time, and. It's not, and I often say this if I do give tours or do do give uh, lectures to school kids about how do you, what makes a successful person or how do you inspire people. I'm doing something for AIM online very shortly in a couple of weeks, which is the Aboriginal um, Island mentoring experience, you know, uh, Indigenous mentoring experience. So I always say to people that just because your environment might be challenging at home, um, school can provide um, solace for you, like the beach if you kind of think of education as your own journey, and you can control that. So I always loved education. Keeping me at school and being engaged with school was not an issue, but it was not propelled by something positive. It was reaction to the experiences of being involved in domestic violence within my home. Yeah. Um, And so when you you started to,
0: mm, uh, when you left high school, Mm. And you well, had a little bit of impressions from some pretty uh, iconic people in the sense of business. What, what did you think you wanted to do? Did you still want to well, do Well, this is what happened. No, or? this
1: is what happened. So, you know, we get to meet Tony Robbins. We go to No Names in Sydney, which is a – I think they closed it down after 50 years, but it used to be a place where people would go for, you know, Spaghetti Bolognese. Trust me, I've been uh, there several yeah. times. No Names is great.
0: We might have been there at the same year. But we're
1: so, like vintage same. So, John McGrath was obsessed with Tony Robbins. Tracked him down, the hair conversation. He brought Tony Robbins to Australia. They became friends. We all, as a group, all went out to No Names. Tony Robbins is an extraordinarily tall man. And his book at the time was Awaken the Joint Within, mm-hmm. which is with really, a really bad haircut at the front. Like, yeah, it was pretty yeah, daggy, right? Yeah. But it was life-changing. My mum left me to live by myself in Woomaloo when I was 15. So, yeah. she lived Left and had a relationship and did other various things, and so I had to pay rent, housing commission rent. Yep. Go to school on your own in work. This house? Yep. Yep. Um, and so I started working at Norman Bar's ice cream when I was fourteen. I'd lied about my age so I could be employed. And Me too. Mine was in a bar. <laughs> yeah. Well, ice cream scooper was my first job, and I did it, and I did it at King's Cross because it was the hours with the it was a shop with the longest oh, hours yeah. that were open. Yeah, They're open yeah. to like one o'clock. Anyway, so I think I was, like, managing that store, and about a year later, like, and had... I was earning a lot of money at the time, like, $130 there. Yeah. Then I would earn, like, Saturday money, and then I had a Sunday job at the International Hyatt, which was a big hotel where the Coca-Cola sign yep. is in Sydney. Yep, I'm right with so you here on the visual. So, I already... I had to work. There was no... You know, I am a workaholic, I still do a lot, but it's always been my nature to do a lot. I had to do a lot. My mother wasn't paying my my rent. You know, I had to pay rent, electricity and a phone, which were my three, fun, and food, my four fundamental bills. While go to school, And we were all playing church football, as I said, and Anthony Robbins became, via John, um, an extraordinary sh- mind shifter in how I, suit- understood myself and for the first time so where I told Mr Botherspoon I wanted to be Prime Minister basically because I wanted to be able to change the laws because I knew of domestic violence and I used to ring the police and I would see what happened as a child and my child brain would say well if I was a a, the Prime Minister I could fix this." this right it was only when I was about Fifteen, did I research all of the Prime Ministers of Australia and found out the majority of them were, in fact, lawyers. So Uh I thought, oh, well, that's very interesting. You know, like, I didn't know that. And so it was through the when I was about 16 that I thought, no, I actually want to be a lawyer. That's what I want to do. And I had never said that publicly or openly because we didn't know any lawyers when I was growing up. There used to be a guy who was an absolute crook in the tweed who's got a stool of practice here that fraudulently sold my grandmother's property and would manipulate black people and all of that still in the tweet still as a practice a long time lawyer that was probably the only lawyer that a lot of people knew you know in the area that you might use for conveyancing a property potentially you might use for a will that was it so we, I didn't know any professional people. We didn't have doctors and lawyers in the family or other types of professions. We never spoke about university when I was growing up. In fact, no one ever spoke about university in Fingal Public School at all, because to become a teacher, you went to an equivalent of TAFE, you just You went to a college, you didn't have to attend university back in those days to even be a teacher. Even in Tweed River High School, and now I've just had my stepdaughter graduate. She's now in her first year of university. So I can say they haven't really improved either at Tweed River, encouraging all their kids to go to university. So it was not a common discussion. Is it something you would have
0: discussed with um, John McGrath? And, um, oh, for
1: sure. And Tony we, Tony all and said, we all did. We all we did. And that's what happened. So Tony's whole book was about, you know, Awaken the Giant Within, if you've never read it, you should read it. No, I, I, I mean, You'll take me right yeah, now. I went about to see him last... CEO, I went maybe. to see... Uh, yeah, yep. I went to see Tony Robbins again in I New York last year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it used to be on late-night infomercials. It wasn't glamorous, right? <laughs> but for a kid but who But it does awakens it, the giant within. It does. Right? So we all kind of did these really bold what do you want to be, what do you want to do type thing. You know, John was, I want to conquer the world in real estate. And he actually effectively went on to do that. John McGraw is a very successful yes. real estate mogul, does amazing things, amazing guy. Another very good friend of ours uh, who was in that group, you know, um, whose name is Steve Dack. Him and I both chose law. And unfortunately, Steve, he did work for Chris Murphy. And, you know, unfortunately, he took his own life and there were various things. But we were both excited by each other because we thought he lived two doors up from me and his other brother is a guy called James Dack whose wife owns all of um Hungry Jackson, Australia Very wealthy people And he worked with John For a number of years Etc So James was the coach Of Moolooloo Warriors The girls team I was the manager And a player wow. you know, We're all interconnected But being involved in They were like 18, 19 i 16 And they're I'm go-getters 16, they're, they're wanting to... They weren't go-getters They were visionaries At right. least okay. able to be visionary Or hard-working yes. Right yeah. And then along comes Somebody who kind of goes well, Who are you about And what are you about what do you want to do and you can choose anything and it's even if you ask a person now who are you and who do you want to be most people aren't comfortable saying out loud what their true ambition may be and so it was the first time and I was self-parenting by that, by that age, right? So it was the first time someone was asking me what do you want to be and what do you want to do? My motivation then was for justice. I was obsessed with criminal law, uh, domestic violence, violence issues. I was trying to remedy things in my own experience. That was my desire. So started um, getting. I got into a communications degree, which was very hard to get into. I was there for a year, feeling very dissatisfied. Um, this is at UTS um, and I was working for a fashion company by that stage because on my board back when I was 16 and 17 I was, I want to travel, I want to work in fashion, I used to do some modelling down at Grace Brothers and Maya down in the centre like on the weekend, again love, for money.
0: Love, love a bit of Grace Brothers. Oh,
1: well, you know, you do. I was, <laughs> if anyone would pay me anything to do anything, like more money, I was looking for a way to, to do small hours yeah. and maximise my amounts because I had bills to pay. Yeah. So that was my, um, you know, motivation my key motivation so went there was working for a fashion company importing fabrics you know doing lots of stuff in fashion doing styling different things and I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do because the communications degree was actually geared towards working in journalism as opposed to writing which was really my deeper love so I thought well what what should I do and my boss was like well don't ruin you know your arts degree like and I started thought well I'll just finish art and do arts law and whatever and that's how that kind of journey came about then I started So working.
0: you added law to the
1: communication degree? Yeah. Right. I, I, two separate degrees, but I added law so I could use my credits and my communications towards an art degree. And in that, I had majored in Aboriginal Studies and Theology. And in my law degree, I first started my career in criminal law. And then, again... The influence of a mentor, because that's one of the strategies that Tony Robbins always tells you to do. Fine, yeah. Make friends with the people who you want to be like. Yeah. Find out how they live their life and what are the behaviours. So I knew that from 16. So I took a very different view about who do I want to get to know, who's living the life that I want, how do they do it, how does that work. I never found a model of understanding my Aboriginality and my connection in that time zone between the ages of, say, 16 And it was only when i was at university i wrote a a paper on genocide i got to present at a conference in a place called vala Dalen, as an undergrad which is northern um, sweden and it was an indigenous people's conference and it did two things changed my politics about understanding racism because i was able to see first nations indigenous people who were blue-eyed white-skinned they had a parliament with dedicated seats. they had a number of other uh behaviors in northern uh europe so their country goes through sweden and norway um you know so nordic or sami people is their name you know so experiencing that and going to sweden i stayed in sweden in Gothenburg for a while after that um this was in then i think i didn't come back because john howard might have been prime minister then I remember feeling distraught about that there are a number of things going on but the evolution of my thinking my global politics about race and myself and identity and racism definitely started to form in my last teenage years in my early 20s when I was understanding the globe more. When I was understanding how racism worked, you never saw black girls on magazines, or on billboards, or anything. I was friends with Danny Hines at the time she went to St. Vincent's at Potts Point. Um, you know, she was like an exotic black, Marsha Hines wasn't exotic black. She was with George Negus at the time. Um, you know, so there was like these click of yes. other things, but even in that space, being black and aboriginal was not identifiable yeah. you didn't know what that looked like so if someone had said to me when i was 17 or 18 put images of aboriginal women on your board for magazines you would find none there was no narrative around what that looked like the idea and again this is what happens life's life always gives you what you want you just got to be open to it it's yeah. so working at the hyatt a high-end boutique With a little bit of patience <laughs> working at the hyatt that was my saturday job High-end, like very, you know, Hyatt was one of the top hotel chains at that time, right? So, wonderful boutique. Taught me a lot about labels and, you know, got my first Louis Vuitton wallet then I think whatever, you know, all sorts of things. Intermorks is incredible, glamorous, like you've never seen out of this world, gorgeous black woman dripping in diamonds. Anyway, I'm in this boutique. boutique. She comes in, she comes in, she spends a lot on a black American Express card, which I knew she had a lot of money then. Um comes again the next day and she just is wanting this conversation about my blackness You know, where where are you from you know uh, are you going to university there are black she told me for the first time I'd never heard of them that there are black universities in the United States i would never heard of such a thing no one ever spoke to me like that before she said you know you're incredibly beautiful you know if you came to the US you know a doctor or a lawyer would snap you up and you know like she was very it was such a contrast to any other black female conversation I'd had in my whole life. A, I never saw a, a black skinned, dark black skinned woman dripping in diamonds like I had seen her. Never been interested in me and my blackness. Never had asked me to define it, like what is it about? Like you're, never told me I was beautiful. Had no notion of that. That is not a conversation or a reflection that White Australia was giving to uh, black girls in the 80s and the 90s early 90s you had none of that it anyway we became friends her name was Melissa and she came in every day and her husband was a businessman and she used to just follow him around she was highly university educated she was university educated highly educated and she said you know you can marry well and she kind of said to me you know you can marry well and travel with your husband I do that or you can have your own career and she just gave me this totally different conversation yeah never had it before no one was having those conversations. So that was another part. When I, people say to me, who has influenced you the yeah. most? This woman whose name I now don't even know, yeah. I can't yeah. recall, yeah. had such an impact to me over a period of like three or four days that I saw her it was profound it was life-changing i met gough whitland many years later and i was a huge gough Whitlam fan yeah. at the celebration of the native title legislation down in canberra and he happened to sit with me for breakfast i was so excited because you know i've just been a huge fan yeah. so i was like oh my god this is amazing yeah. and he did say something incredible to me i mean i was interested in land rights and i understood what that meant i understood what uh, human rights was about i was interested in those spaces he said to me never underestimate the power of a small audience and i never forgot that because Impacting people is not in the volume and the number; it's in the intimacy of having the conversation to see people differently and um, allow them to see themselves differently. So, fast forward my career. Just on that though, mm. it's that
0: exchange that you and Melissa,
1: yeah, amazing, had
0: in that in that three day that you said. So the openness mm. of you and because. Yeah. One thing my father did teach me was you always ask your way to success, right? In that, in that mm, sense, that's good yeah. too. You know, and and he said a whole lot of other profound things. No, not profound. Other way, but let's not go there. But what you what you were doing was interacting with her. You weren't you weren't being shy and and, and meager, and you know she she was talking to you and you were answering her, and she was seeing the gold in you as well, like encouraging. I think
1: just that. seeing the the global. Um, magnificence of black women i had never been in that conversational lane before you know um, i've now lived in the u.s i've lived overseas i've done various things i worked on barack obama's campaign as an australian lawyer in florida when he was going up against hillary on the democratic nomination that was exciting for me but most of my time was working with african-american communities re-enrolling them to vote and they were mortified and shocked I was living in a gated community. My partner at the time was an African-American man, um, which would be considered, you know, middle class or upper middle class and executive. And um, he was frightened for my life, you know, like, why are you going door knocking and helping and getting people enrolled? And I was just like, I was working for Lizzie Taylor Lawyers in Sydney, but they were allowing me to work remotely um, for them. Uh, and this was I think in 2008, 2009, something like that. Um, and I I didn't meet Barack Obama, but I did meet Michelle, so that's good enough for me. Um, But I was very excited to have a black president globally. Like that was its own payoff to me. What was shocking to me is every African-American household that I would go to, how fearful they were to get behind a black president and for him to be elected. And that taught me a lot about my own politics as well, how that works. They didn't know black people even existed in Australia. Is, Is Australia a black country? Like, there was a lot of that going on. So that globalisation of my thinking definitely came from being at university, Going over to Europe, meeting white-skinned Indigenous people, understanding Indigenous people as a global context of four or five hundred, or actually now five to six hundred million people, yep. understanding blackness, how it, how it's globalized, yep. seeing that, um, of course, then I you know rethought what had happened with um, the civil rights movement, Charles Perkins taking the boat, the bus out to Moree, um, uh the head of the Supreme Courts in New South Wales. Was a, was a university student who worked with Charles at the time. And what people don't tell you about the civil rights movement and Charles Perkins doing the Maury bus rides is that that was directly influenced by the civil rights movement, which was for the first time being broadcast in Australian TVs because people were finally having television. So what, you, what I realised then and what is happening even now with Black Lives Matter is that what happens... Is that sometimes when you're viewing an external race debate with black skin people it either mobilizes or mostly it informs and sometimes it shapes how black people within your own country are talked about understood etc it's like suggesting that leave it to beaver helped inform Australian households how to be nuclear male female CSI CIS yeah. Two-parent to family. That TV show in of itself helps inform how people may behave. In the same way the civil rights movement informed and inspired a mobilising of a bus movement out to Moree to challenge racism in Australia. There is a relationship. Meeting Melissa helped me understand that I could see myself in a broader black context and yeah. understood my own life and ambition yeah. in a much broader way.
0: It's so global and you've got that book, which I can't I really wait to read because I fully know where you're coming from. From me not knowing a lot about Indigenous culture growing up um, and, and studying archaeology and anthropology and then literally going, I'm not finding out what I need to find out. I went and lived in London for two years and I remember seeing tall beautiful black women walking past me Mm. on the street in the high street that were not flashed with diamonds but they were models and they like that and I and I loved that and I felt I felt for once in my life uh, really connected to the world uh, which I hadn't seen in Australia. Mm. So this actually is a good segue to go into curry country and Mm. where you're at now which is there's a there's a big picture to paint here but you started on a journey Mm. by your mum's wish. Yeah. About ten years ago, wasn't Yeah, that? Uh,
1: about twelve years ago now. So, but what happened is my mother. Oh, I guess I should just finish my career part. But anyway, you know, I did work for Tree Shire Council as a lawyer there in oh, the salt yes. development, <laughs> oh, yeah. which is fine. You know, I continued doing poor, that. This is yeah. definitely a <laughs> book. But my career then went back to the corporate environment. I've been in a senior executive with um, government before, so doing large reform programs across the state. You know, um, so I specialised in environment planning. And I should tell you this story. I was in crime, doing criminal law, public criminal work, which was great and I, you know, you're passionate about doing it. Again, following, <laughs> following the principle of getting mentors who help advise, I've always had a uh, career mentor in different areas that I've always sought to be involved in. So I have my own consulting business, Douglas & Associates. I sit as a professional director on various boards. Uh, and I, my heart work is the organisation of the cousin consortium known as Curry Country. So I'm an economist as well. I have a business degree, and I'm doing a PhD in economics at the moment at Griffith University, which is on the Gold Coast. So, I'm so glad you put that bit in. Yeah. It's a bit so, be me To jump forward there. Yeah. But. So, but all those bits, all your experiences in life, help inform how you behave and how you react and how you shape yourself. My Aboriginality has been well-founded because my family has always been black, I've always been Aboriginal, I've always known a lot about my history, but articulating that and bringing that to life in the things that I do, either professionally or in a purposeful way, like with Curry Country, comes from me being able to align and manage both my interests and my passions I know that if you do things that come from your heart you are pulled in that direction you're drawn and you're propelled it's the way you inspire yourself if you do heart work no matter what what it's in you'll be okay because work won't feel like work and money comes I had a very good mentor who said to uh, environmental environmental uh, do environmental law as a specialty because it sits in the Supreme Court jurisdiction in New South Wales which means you get dedicated judges they're very technical Um, which means they only look at this type of legislation environment planning lawyers are only part of the legislation they need to be concerned with and they become specialists in that for example in Queensland judges who sit in the environmental court also sit on matters of civil matters or criminal matters so they're not dedicated judges in the Queensland system so my advisor at the time, my legal mentor was like specializing that hey, there are not enough women in it. There are no Aboriginal women in it. It's technical. Your brain works very well in that. Do that. So that's why I became an environment planning lawyer. I did that. I love that. I work for councils. I worked for developers. But in that mix of environmental law is an area known as social sustainability, which sort of sits with environmental sustainability. And social sustainability is about finding social value as you both develop and move, but also having social value in what a tree might be worth, or what a park might be worth, or what a beach might be worth. And you bring that reality through an economic conversion into the value of the opportunity. So that's when you get to talk about things like, what is the value of the Great Barrier Reef? What is the value of fresh air? So that for me brought together my Aboriginal theology, yep. my Aboriginal spiritual beliefs into a, into a place that I can feel genuinely compelled to work in because it's completely aligned with my value system. So one might say, oh is that the same as being an environmental lawyer? No it's not because social value is larger than the environment, it's a social interplay and reaction of both culture and people. So you do things like you develop salt and you make sure that there are free areas so that you don't have to be rich to use very good areas. You don't have to be rich to come and have a barbecue on the area. It's not a gated community. It's accessible to everyone irrespective of their socio-economic position, position. That's what social value is about. Right. So I work in those areas still advising companies on social value and environmental and social uh, impact. I still do that so my own businesses I do that but I am a legal strategist I'm a business strategist so I problem solve and normally environmental social or one of those elements is a miss in that and I specialise in governance around that so the decision makers and the boards it's a really holistic approach it is it's good so and what's exciting for me is that all the work that I do do um, comes from my heart I'm genuinely interested in solving it because I get to use a range of ways in which to look at through a different lens and yeah. solve the problem yeah. Yeah. so my phd is on race bias and investment decision making i'm trying to influence governance models and decision makers on how they assess a problem looking at both their own racial bias and looking at social value as the benefit so that's what my phd is about so i spend a lot of time in big business doing that when my mother passed away this is how curry country came about When my mother passed away she um asked me, would I organise the family, the curry family? Now, that for a nuclear family, that might seem pretty easy. <laughs> but for an Aboriginal family, that's extremely complex. And she knew that I did large-scale project work. Um, I have worked for Lee, so I started Barangaroo. They're a social sustainability manager and reordered that whole site. I still do have them as a global client, so I still do work for them and in their different businesses. Um, but she said, you know, can you organise the family? And I kind of resisted that, so my mum passed. I resisted doing anything for nearly two years, a year and a half, two years, because I just didn't have the energy. And then I thought, what I need to do is I need to answer every question that I would have had growing up about my culture and what it means both in all its manifestations. So the theology of it, the native title elements of it, land boundaries, language boundaries, uh, social values, so that when kids are growing up now I feel that Aboriginal kids there's a lot of demand on knowing specifically who they're where they're from how they originated what their language means etc when I was growing up those demands weren't as pronounced I could tell people I was Aboriginal and they would be okay with that but of course since the native title legislation came in in 1993 there's been more of an understanding in Australia about different nations and the nuances inside what that might mean. And because I'm familiar with that, because I know that, it seemed very logical for me to build a framework that people in the family, so cousin, the business model is called a cousin consortium. So Curry Country is built around multiple small business operators who are all connected biologically to James and Ellen Curry but the specialty or the backbone of all of their work is that they are on country and the sovereign owners of the country in which they're operating on. And that looks like native food, cultural burning, environmental businesses, uh, advising businesses on cultural awareness or cultural education, there's a range of things. All of my family members who have small businesses were all doing it as an individual rather than as a collective. Curry Country is like the Black West Farmers. It's simply the umbrella for multiple small business operators. And it all comes from the ground where we're sitting on at the moment. And because it's my specialty as a strategist That's what I do naturally. That's what other people pay me to do. It would seem sensible that I should do that for my own family and that's what I've done. So I've created our own economy, our own formulas and values and we started this 12 years ago by bringing family together, ordering the family. So there are eight main lines in the curry family, all has a different colour. We get together every year and do a curry convoy on our own country so that we're constantly educating everybody in our family, which is almost 3,000 people, about their own history in a very particularised, deliberate way. Why do you do that? Because as they grow and develop and become that woman in their 20s or young man in their 20s, they both have this backbone of rich Aboriginal context to who they want to be and what they want to do.
0: And something I, I just absolutely applaud your work within your own um, family thank I you just think it's not enough of it and you and i spoke about this yesterday um and you said well tell me more about your culture you know and, and there is way much there is way more there uh, you know i'm australian no there is you know, who are you really that's, yeah. right. that's right and when i touched on where some of my heritage came from you wanted to know more about that just because i should know it yeah. to share with you the way you've shared with me yeah. about curry country because you're aware of it and so are all the lineage down aware of it. So something that now that um, we've shared this experience, I was always digging and I, I'm going to dig, dig deeper. I want to know more about my culture so that you and I can have a coffee one day and chat about that as well, which is, you said, that's pretty much an obligation that you have within yourself well, is, and your tribe is, to
1: do this. This is the gift, right? You know, so... There is such a demand on Aboriginal people, Indigenous people globally, to know the intricate natures about who they are, how they are, how did they get here, when did they get here. I mean, I can tell you where James and Ellen were living from 1810, physically, I can go to that place. That's how much of a demand on me there is to know how much I need to know. It's not just I need to know what area, there's a demand on knowing person and place. So I know where they were and who they were before Queensland became its own state. So when a non-indigenous person in Australia says, what can I do because I want us to be a great Australia, a forward-thinking Australia, an integrated Australia, a happy Australia, the gift you can give Aboriginal people is know completely who you are. Because the more you do that, the more you allow me to have oxygen and be Aboriginal on my own place. But the moment you fail to do that, the moment you want to sit there and say, I'm Australian and I'm happy with non-defining that and I can just be, it's the more you're going to fight to have oxygen on this country. I agree. But I need the oxygen here yeah. because you have multiple yeah. places in which yeah. we'll embrace you, yeah. have, his- have history, that you will find your grandparents were in 1788. Yes. I don't have that option. This is my only option. Yeah. So I don't say that Australia's not for sharing. I'm just saying don't take the oxygen from Aboriginal people on this continent and the way that you gift them that joy is by finding out intimately who you are and the gift and telling your kids that so that they don't then yep. go, oh, no, we're all Australian together. Yeah, yeah. No, I want, the, I want the kid who comes beside me and goes, you know what, I live in Australia, I'm loyal to, I love it, but my history is here, here, yeah. and here, and we're so excited. We found these things yeah. out. Yeah. And
0: and you know what your gift is actually just telling me that that was a real <laughs> gift and now we're telling other people
1: so yeah. tell other that, people get it thanks. out there yeah I'm right with that's you that's your gift you don't need to know more about my culture I'm happy to do that homework for myself yeah but what you can give to me as a fellow Australian is know exactly intimately where you are and who you're from thank you for that so let's go to Indigenous tourism yes. because something
0: that I reckon. I have this, I can feel it in my waters, that you, <laughs> I can feel it in my finger waters, that you and myself and whoever else is with us um, may be collaborating on some really cool in, um, Indigenous tourism aspects for the tweet. Something that I've been trying to kind of, oh, it's been marinating over here, but meeting you has just really, for me, um, it's, it's given me a full circle of where it can go. So, mm. can you drill down a bit into what you and your, your gorgeous husband, Sean, do uh, with pippies and, and just an example of what you do there, say with somewhere like Pippet um, and a Walpole All right, instrument.
1: yeah. Okay, well, I think one of the... One of the things that a lot of people in the family were already doing when we uh, devised Curry Country, because Curry, there's Curry Country and Curry Foundation. So the Curry Foundation has representatives of all of the lines, and they uh, focus on things like I provide a lot of information and heritage and historical information. We've got anthropologists in the family, archaeologists in the family, engineers in the family, doctors in the family, lawyers in the family. I think we've pretty much got every vocation you can imagine that's Curry person. But getting them to contribute to a foundation in a way that's meaningful so that we have explored all the medicinal qualities of foods for example from our own family perspective so they can be positioned against contemporary health knowledge and we share that as people get ill or what's going on what are our own native or natural remedies what are our what are our principles for understanding anxiety? So we constantly are balancing those things with our own deep knowledge, our own family knowledge, and the contemporary application of those things. The foundation owns all of curry country knowledge, history, uh, all of that. So the foundation is representatives of all of the family, curry country is the action or the businesses that sit underneath it. One of it is native food, so we did a whole journey on native foods both health use, medicinal use and all of those things. People then were doing tours on uh, foraging so there's a number of people in the family that do foraging on different headlands, on different beaches and different areas. I, I knew that they were interested in doing that and of course then my job is to work out how can they connect with people who are inspired to use native produce. Mm-hmm. So I approached a number of amazing chefs. I had a list of fifteen chefs who were in our footprint because we believe in food sovereignty. So I don't sell to food or whatever outside of our footprint. We don't yeah. go into other nation stuff. They've got to be their own leaders in those things. Yes, I approached different amazing chefs. Uh, We knew the Devlin family, so that's uh, Ben. We knew Shay, his cousin, who has a business down in Byron um, where they do weddings and things like that. So they've been in the area for a long time. Um, He was at Halcyon House at the time that I met Ben before he opened Pippet, but Pippet was on the horizon. And people were interested in learning about native foods, how to forage it. I mean, these things, for example, are edible these are leaves that you can eat Um, a lot of people don't even know that you know so um, that's one of the things that Pocket Herb is interested in exploring and using so we took all of our traditional information and knowledge partnered up with some amazing chefs who were like I want to explore that and become really good at preparation and understanding it a bit better what can we use and what can we do that led to Yuguris, which is a really common, which are pippies, you know, which is really common in the area. Ben has a restaurant, Pippit is, is no hoof, so he has a particular menu type. Yep. And uh, was interested in having a look at pippies and Yuguri. And so our relationship went from doing that to now we have a, an experience with Pippet, where we will take you out to get Yuguris with us for an hour or so. Mm-hmm. Your feet will get washed afterwards, and people will start take you through a range of amazing food. Mm. So having that with on traditional owners yeah. in the Tweed Coast is something I think all people would love. We've taken people to the creeks, for example, Cujun Creek. There's um, acacia branches where you can pull off here, you put into the water, and it stuns the fish. So when you've got large mullet, like mullet are on the run at the moment, in the creek, you can basically stun them so you can pick them up so it's kind of the easy way to fish blackfella style so people were interested in doing that so uh, i've got another cousin that takes people out to do that particularly in the waterways who loves doing that and so we were together i created a platform curry country you can currycountry.com where you can book different experiences but what you'll know is that the person who's taking you on the experience whether it's getting you i'm going with you next wednesday because my nieces are coming down to talk about university and we're all doing it as a family which would be great but Thank lots you. of pe- people do it, you know. So we've got family that do it at Broadbeach, etc., depending on the restaurants are. And the restaurants who are keen, like they took Emu Eggs Office last year, Emu Meat, from family who have a property near Ipswich, so they're curries that own uh, Emu property out there. Um, so restaurants were the ones that were really open to exploring yep. uh, Indigenous culture on the plate in yep. a really localised uh, glorious, elegant fashion. So North Rim does amazing things with our produce. Pippet does amazing things. Element, we're buying Pippet, uh We're buying Pippis for a while. Uh, Rays have shown interest. Housey and in House Jason from there is one of the clients. So I really went to the personality of the chef. Yeah. Because the chef is the one who drives and creates. Yeah. So I wanted them to know, and we're uh, providing some bread seeds uh, to a restaurant up in Brisbane as well. I wanted them to know, if they wanted to explore native ingredients, that we would get those native ingredients and work with them. Then of course, Pocket Herbs came to us. We met with them and they wanted to start to use and grow natives in a hydroponic environment, which is absolutely aligned with where we wanna be. So Curry Foundation has a contract With Pocket Herbs, in which we provide and sell native foods. So it's called um, Native Foods by Curry Country.
0: And I just absolutely love all of that, being a foodie as well, and I can see that authentic connection, which is going to keep going and growing. So I would, we're nearly up to an hour, and and I, and I, no, I you expire could. in an hour. No, I will. I could do a series on you. Look out. But what I would love to know is, thank you so much for sharing that knowledge with me and your stories, and I can't wait to have more of those with you. But who and where? Because this podcast is about, you mentioned it before, people to place. So this podcast is about a people, a person and a place. So who and where? And it can be a group of what do you mean, who and where? So, a person or a pe- people, a gathering of people, and a
1: place in the world that inspires you? Uh, I definitely think my own family, for sure. I think James and Ellen Curry inspire me uh, again and again and again and again and again. Uh...
0: So what a wonderful uh, we've, we've just we've rounded an hour and here we are again we've come back on because I actually really want to know people to place Arabella Douglas who and where inspires you in this
1: world uh, I'm definitely constantly inspired by James and Ellen Curry the more I know about my great great grandparents, the more I understand their life and the more I know about myself. I am amazed at just the simple things like the remedies for health within their own family that they passed on, the remedies for understanding yourself and your mind, the the solutions to listening to yourself, and those practices, which when you're a child, you don't see as a theological practice, but now that I'm old enough, I can see that their advice, their way of being, their connection to themselves, sustain them. That thinking and knowing that and that confidence and knowing that everything comes from within, that you can be centred by the earth is profound to me. Mm, I I learned more about how to do that, how to to apply Aboriginal spiritual beliefs to my living daily. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful that I get to live on country that my great, great grandparents walked on. I'm grateful. So the place would have to be your country. (laughs) It is my country. If you want the best in life, this is the thing about everybody's country. There are people in the back of Rawarana right now that feel exactly the same way about their country that I do about my country. Because if you are connected to a place and your body will tell you whether you're connected to a place, I am not. This is not a monopoly here. I'm not the only person that has this experience. But I have this intimate relationship with this country. I encourage everybody to find the place on the planet that they have that intimate relationship with. It is profound. It's a blessing. It's a constant blessing. I never feel a lack in life. And that mostly comes from my connection and my uh, logical and spiritual connection to place.
0: Well, that's... Um, yeah, I've got... Goosebumps from that one. And I feel blessed that we've had this conversation. So thank you so much today. I'm I'm in um, gratitude and in awe of what you, um, your story. Your story. There we go. Thank you so much. Thank you. We will definitely be uh, doing a version two of this down the track. Adios.